Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Diana and Piyush. Diana is the CEO and founder at Media for Growth, a media for equity advisory firm specialised in Series A to pre-IPO media capital fundraising. Piyush leads the Brand Capital International team in Silicon Valley as Vice President of BWI, the strategic investment arms of the Times Group, India's largest multimedia conglomerate. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Piyush, Diana, welcome to the European VC. It's a pleasure to have you today on the show. How is everything? Everything is great. Thank you for having us. Love to be here. So today we are doing somewhat of a less common episode. And so instead of me going on a completely improvised ramble on why and what, I think I'll allow our very intelligent audience to understand the why. So Diana, maybe give us a quick rundown of, you know, what exactly are you up to? And I think the only thing I'll say to kind of set this up is maybe share the origin story of Media for Equity and how that works. Sure, um, David, happy to and glad you asked. Maybe before I explain how this, every, you know, the whole thing started, um, just in very simple, plain terms, what Media for Equity actually means and how, how it works. And I'm super glad to have Piyush here with me because uh, he and his team have done these investments for almost 20 years and he will share some of the learnings as well. So in very plain terms, Media for Equity is a financing option. It's an alternative option to venture capital that provides advertising and that can be TV, print, radio and online to startups in return for equity in the company. So media for equity, or you might come it across as airtime for equity, have been used interchangeably over time, but the model has evolved significantly since it started, which basically goes back to almost 23 years ago. And I'll come back to that. So media for growth, the company that I run, we are essentially a media for equity advisory firm and a global network of investors. We have right now over 30 such funds in our network. And we specialize in Series A to pre-IPO media capital fundraising. So what that means, we essentially work with founders to optimize the media capital fundraising and to make this venture model more accessible to other emerging funds, but also other players in the market, including investors that would like to know more about how it works and essentially co-invest in those deals. Why media for growth and not media for equity or airtime for equity or any other terminologies or media capital? Well, many two reasons. First, this industry, as I said, has evolved a lot. When I say media for equity funds, there's just not one single breed of funds. In fact, you'll find a lot of funds that do part cash, part equity deals. Some do a mix of putting money behind your creatives whilst providing you with media inventory. And some others, in fact, they do media for revenue. So they would provide the inventory um, in exchange for revenue share. So when you say media for equity is already very restrictive, so we're trying to move away from that. These media funds also come in you know, different types. So we have the Times Group with us. They pertain to a media company. So Brand Capital International is the venture arm of the Times Group. But we also have independent funds. And um, I'm sure we'll touch on that as well, where they aggregate this media capital 
from different providers. And the second reason for that is that if you think about it, equity is the most precious asset for a startup founder. So when you say media for equity, immediately sounds extremely transactional. And I believe it's important to understand how this actually model, how it works and what you get in return. What I want to add here is that it's not just about a mere transaction of inventory for equity, but in fact, most of these funds provide expertise, resources, access to creatives, adapting those creatives to the markets in which you're going to, which is extremely important. And it may not sound like a lot, but trust me, if you're a late stage company, if you're trying to put money into creatives, you're going to end up probably even paying millions of dollars. So all of this come together in a deal and it goes beyond just a pure transaction. And now I have to ask the inevitable question that I am sure many of our VC listeners are sitting there with saying, well, I'm also providing hiring assistance to all my startups. I'm not doing half of what you're going to get is going to be dollars and the rest, well, you're also going to pay me as a consultant. So tell me why exactly is it that media for equity and media for growth, this whole approach of investing isn't just kind of doing a deal that's a bit too good to the venture investors. In order to talk about why this model works and why it has worked so successfully for us, let me take a step back and talk a little bit about the Times Group and how exactly it came up with this, this idea of media capital or media for equity. So the Times Group, as you might be aware, or some of your listeners might be aware, is a 180-year-old organization established by two British gentlemen in 1838 called Bennett Coleman and Company Limited. Company was then moved to an Indian family who's owned it since 1956. And the company was primarily centered around a large print property called the Times of India, which uh, many might not be aware is the largest circulated English newspaper in the world. The Times of India, while it was growing on its own and it's still a formidable player in the market, also started working on other multimedia assets as the company grew. So it added television to its portfolio, it added radio to its portfolio, added a number of periodicals, magazines, and a number of, number of other assets along the way. By 1995, the group already was one of the largest in the country and it started its digital arm. Today, after Google and Facebook, Times Internet Limited is one of the largest internet media companies in the country, has around 700 million viewers every month. And its other properties like radio are some of the largest, its television network, general news is the largest in the country and so on and so forth. So a very, very large media conglomerate that had established its brand in the mind of the consumers during these 170 odd years. Come 2003, the group realized that they can start venturing out and investing in companies using its media assets. And the reason it could do it is because the fact that it had so many different media properties that were able to cut across several demographics across the country allowed the group to have startups of all different sizes in nature, you know, to work with and invest in. So in 2003, we started this model called Brand Capital in India. Between 2003 and 2015, the company invested in over 850 companies, invested over $3.5 billion during this time. And the model was very successful. We had investments like Flipkart, investments like Big Basket, a more in recent investment like Baiju's, you know, companies you've heard of uh, coming out from the Indian marketplace. In 2015, we decided that we wanted to go global. We had looked at many companies who wanted to expand into the Indian market. But they were not able to do so on their own. So companies like Uber tried it on their own in 2013, 2014, couldn't do it. Airbnb, Coursera, you know, all of these companies were having trouble navigating the complex Indian landscape. So we came in and we said, we'll invest in your company. We'll put in our media assets. We'll give you access to media, yes. But at the same time, we'll give you a few additional things. 
One will give you an, a very strong understanding of the psyche of the consumer in India, which as a company that does not belong to the Indian marketplace when it starts, does not have. And therefore, you have the advantage of landing in a market with an inherent understanding of how to go about navigating your way to the consumer. Number two, will also help you figure out what's the best communication strategy when you're reaching out to your consumers in India. What's the best markets to go after? Should you go after the metro cities or should you go after a smaller town to begin with to pilot your project? And number three, as a large media company ourselves, we had a network of almost 30,000 advertisers that we work with. Are there any ways that we can get your foot in the door and help you reach out to some potential partners along the way as you expand into India? So for us, yes, it is a media capital investment. Yes, we do put media on the table. But what we are also bringing alongside is a very strong understanding of the market, a very strong understanding of the consumer and an ability to not just give you media, but to actually give you conversions on that media. Because trust me, a publisher really understands its media very well. And if there's somebody you want to consult as to how you want to deploy that media, it's probably the publisher itself. And these are the things that are very typical and very unique to a media capital investment you know, which allows us to have you know, a portfolio, which in the international market now is 40 companies strong. We've committed over $150 million during this time. We've invested in companies in the US. Around 70% of our portfolio is from the US market. But we have investments in UK. We have investments in Finland, Australia, Singapore. Essentially, anywhere a company is looking to expand into India, if they believe in the power of branding, if they believe in the power of what media can do for them, then we are there to help these companies grow and scale. And could I ask you, Diana, then, because I think it's natural to then say, is there an equivalent in Europe? Do we have players that do this in Europe? Absolutely. And I'll come back to this question. I just want to just very briefly wrap up on what just Piyush said and going back to your question about why VCs should you know really care about this. And if you look at the European market, right, because that's, that's really what we're talking about as well today, the kind of trend that we're seeing as well, there's not that many consumer-focused VCs. Across the UK, I'm here in the UK, but also in Europe as well. A lot of the companies that have raised media for equity are predominantly direct-to-consumer companies. I mean, we have a lot of exceptions and a lot, a lot of B2B companies or B2B2C companies, but primarily we're looking at direct-to-consumer startups. So a lot of investors are a bit reluctant to put money that they know for a fact it will go 100% into advertising. They will try to probably exhaust all the digital channels or try to grow organically or through you know, network effects, which makes a lot of sense. But a lot of companies reach a point where you are, you spend a lot on digital, but no matter how much you're trying to spend, you're going to reach those diminishing returns. So you could go to a VC and raise a million dollars, or you could go to a media capital fund and raise a million dollars, but you will get probably $5 million worth of media, the expertise that also Piyush explained, and all the other resources that come with all these big corporates alongside. So that's, I think, just to summarize why I think investors should maybe look towards media funds as a partner. And luckily, we see a lot more such investments that happen at the same time. Um, so we have both VCs and media funds investing together. And it allows a startup founder most of the time to raise larger rounds of funding and to also extend the runway. And just to substantiate some of what uh, Diana said with data, what we did last year, we decided to look at the marketing spends of some of the companies that have gone public more recently in the U.S. market. So companies like Coinbase, Robinhood, Freshworks, companies that have uh, had uh, a fairly good IPO in most of these instances because most of these companies listed in 2021. 
if you look at their balance sheet, if you look at their 10Ks, what we realize is these companies on an average are spending between 15% to as much as 55% of their total expenses on marketing. So it's a very, very large amount of money, which is in any case coming from venture capital at the first place. Now, if venture capital is anyways funding that, which in turn is going to, let's say, a Google or a Facebook, why not have a media capital investor come in, potentially put in that 30% and effectively increase the runway of the company by another 50% by that capital now being spent towards operational assets rather than it being spent towards media and marketing. So I think that is very important to remember because whether or not you bring in media capital, these companies are going to spend on media one way or another. Whether that happens through venture capital money or whether that happens through media for equity, it's going to happen one way or another. And I want, I want to deep dive a bit on this because it's actually two questions in one. So first question is, you know, if this were a traditional episode, we would have by now kind of spoken about the strategy, the thesis, you know, the typical deal, right? What is the typical deal? Like, what does that look like? Right. So that's kind of my question. What is a typical deal? And then back in my uh, previous life, before I was in venture, I actually negotiated a big deal for my government on how could the government leverage the different communication channels that, you know, the media ecosystem across the country had. One finding I had at that time was that it's incredibly hard to price this. What is it worth, right? And rate cards, what the hell does that mean? It means shit. That was my finding in my country in Portugal, right? So having that said and, and bringing the, the two questions together into one, you know, what is a typical deal and how do you value this thing, right? When we say it's a f 5 million euro investment or whatever the currency is, right? How do we get to that number and how do those conversations happen behind the scenes? Uh, like any other fund, we have an investment thesis that we center ourselves around. In our case, what we're looking for when we're investing in a company using media assets is the company must have had reasonable traction already. It must have been able to prove its business model in the market that it currently operates out of. So in its home market, it should have had a business model that's been tested with some revenue traction. This typically means that we find ourselves at the life cycle, which is series A and beyond. So most of the companies that we've invested in are more on the growth to later stage. And, and the simple reason is if these companies haven't had an opportunity to test their product really, by putting in media, you're going to bring them a lot of consumers. But is the company ready to onboard those consumers? Is the product ready to be tested with a number of consumers that's too large maybe for where the company is right now and for its appetite? Therefore, as far as the stage is concerned, it's almost always you know growth in later stage. As far as sectors are concerned, we are quite sector agnostic. I mean, as a media company, we believe everybody out there needs media. Everybody needs to get the word out and reach out to their consumer. Of course, uh, like Dina mentioned previously, we do tend to lean more towards consumer-facing companies than towards enterprise companies. Having said that, uh, one third of our portfolio right now is enterprise. And we've had some great successes in, in that more specifically with the help of our assets, uh, which are more focused on finance. So it is a healthy mix of both consumer and enterprise. To your question about how do we structure a transaction. In India, we have led rounds. In the US, when we started, because we wanted to be a part of the larger ecosystem, what we decided is to tag along other investors in a fundraise. So what we typically do is if there's a fundraise that's taking place, we would just accompany other investors, follow the same terms as those investors and participate in a, in a round. If the company is not in the process of raising a round, we would typically then give the company an opportunity to raise a round in the next six to 12 months so that it has some form of an external validation on what the valuation is, what the terms are, 
And if for whatever reason, the company is not able to do that round, we fall back on the previous round. Those are the terms that we have generally you know, stuck to for most of our investments that we have done in international market. Could I just ask you, because you say there, if it sounds like you're often doing rounds in between rounds. And I'm guessing that's because you're meeting a company as they are about to do a big ass spend in India. Am I right in saying that? And then that is where the conversation about doing this instead comes. Yes, I, I think that is one reason, Andreas, you're right. If in case we find a company that is in the process of doing the biggest round in India, uh, then it makes uh, every sense for them to work with us immediately and rather than wait for a round which they raise in the future. That's one. There are other instances also where we meet company, we talk to them about the India opportunity and they realize, yes, it is indeed a big opportunity. Their product is ready. The incremental cost of capital to expand into a market like India is not very significant, let's say, in this company's case. In those instances, also the company is ready to work with us and do the round, the intermittent sort of round with us without having to do, wait for an actual fundraise. So what we've experienced actually when we started in the US, not a lot of companies were looking at India. US being the most important market for the startups here, then maybe a European market, the China market, and then India. Over the last few years, though, that has changed. China has dropped out of the list of many of these companies. And India has emerged as a very strong player. And therefore, we find ourselves featuring in these discussions more and more. But yeah, these are a couple of reasons why a company would want to do around with us in between its uh, capital race. So maybe just adding to what Pierre said, kind of now we are zooming out a bit from just brain capital investment thesis and looking primarily Europe, because that's where most of the actual investments have happened outside of India, obviously, because the team has invested in over 900 businesses just in India alone. So I'm going to just come back to what Piyush just said, just giving you some high level numbers. And then I will revert back to your original question, Andreas, about, you know, who's doing this in Europe? Who are they? How they started? So last year, we we actually run a research studies up on the website on Media for Growth. It's about the state of the industry. So we looked at all the global markets, but as I said, a lot of the investments were concentrated in Europe. So primarily the stage at which these startups find themselves when they raise their first Media for Equity deal, there are loads of examples when they actually raise a lot of follow-on Media for Equity investments. It's primarily at a seed stage. So that's the stage at which they are concentrated, about 43% of these investments. Our sample size was roughly about 400, 450 companies. And I, obviously, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? You have to have a proven business model and a stable product and the infrastructure to be able to go on TV. And I mentioned TV mainly because in the last, well, the venture model started in the first 10, 15 years, it was predominantly TV. It was one of those channels that, it can supercharge your growth, but it was just extremely difficult to access as an early stage company, primarily from a finance perspective, but also from an expertise point of view. So that's the stage. When you're looking at business models, what's actually really interesting is that 31% of these companies are actually operating on a B2B model. And I think the reason this is interesting, it's because the media for equity model has also evolved. So it's not just TV and it's not just media companies investing in this company, in the startups. But there's a lot of independent funds that have started to aggregate radio, TV, outdoor, digital, which basically what that provides is a lot of flexibility and options to these companies. So they don't have to just do TV and then ultimately they will be obviously restricted in terms of the sectors which are at or the stage or the type of model which they operate in. So that's an interesting fact, in my opinion. And then also when we zoom in at the different sectors and industries, we have 
e-commerce, digital health, fashion tech. These are like predominantly the most popular industries, but then you also have more general SaaS. And with the Times Group, we have enterprise options, uh, examples as well, like the Scara in Singapore. And I don't, Piyush, I don't think he mentioned, but another interesting fact as well is that the team actually invested in public listed companies as well. So there are examples such as QMedia, which are listed on Canada Stock Exchange or Tally in Australia. So this is an interesting model. If you try to contextualize it in the venture landscape overall, it sits within different stages of growth from all the way from seed stage, I would say probably Series A more so now, all the way to pre-IPO and even IPO. So public listed companies. David asked a question and you were on your way to answer it. And then I kind of interrupted the flow and I'm sorry about that. But I do think it's, no, no. it's interesting. So let's get back to it. Uh, the question was, how the hell do you value the media that you provide to the startups? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I was about to say that I think the only thing that's been consistent about media companies across the world is uh, the apparent inconsistency in pricing media. It seems to be a, a problem for more, most consumers everywhere. And I think it's no different in India. It's no different in the U.S. as well. And uh, again, one of the questions, Andreas and David, we, we get all the time, how do you price this media? What is the value that I'm receiving? Because am I giving my equity for a discount if you're really pricing this media for too much for me? There, I think very early on, we realized that if we were to do anything along those lines, both as a brand, as Times Group in India, as well as somebody who wanted to establish themselves uh, as an investor, it was very important that the message went through to the companies that what we had, what was most important to us was their best interest. And if we were to try and squeeze out more equity uh, by giving them higher priced media, at the end of the day, these companies would not do well in a marketplace where there are other competitors probably buying media in cash, finding it cheaper. And therefore, I think there'll be, it's more a market force that has led us to come to a point where the media that we offer these companies is very competitively priced. One, because we have skin in the game. These companies need to do well for us to make any return out of it. Second, these companies are also very good negotiators. So oftentimes you would find clauses that protect their interests uh, in our documents. Not every company that we work with works with us on a most favored nation clause, I would say. But at the same time, there's often a request that please ensure this pricing takes place very competitively. Having said that, what we have done within our organization is we have established a team called Brand Strategy. The responsibility of Brand Strategy is to act as a third party within the organization and negotiate on behalf of all our portfolio companies with our sales team. So they are the ones who are responsible for getting the best pricing for these portfolio companies and act as independent advisors. They are the ones who carry out their campaigns, who come up with, you know, ideas for what creatives would look like, what copy would look like. Their responsibility essentially is of a media agency sitting outside the rest of the organization in a manner of speaking and working on behalf of these portfolio companies. And I think that is what has led us to instill confidence in our portfolio and, and subsequently our pipeline for them to continue working with us and you know for us to get to a number which is around 1,000 odd companies put together under Times Group now. So you are absolutely not also in the editorial team of the Times Group. That is very clear and everyone can understand that. But I am sure that there is misconceptions and considerations about how does this actually work. Um, so I'm curious to hear how you have uh, thought about that and how you communicate that to the to the ecosystem. Again, being a company that largely works on brand value, on having established its brand to the consumers, the last thing we'd want to do is dilute that 
by sending the impression that there is any level of influence uh, from the editorial side of our business on the investments that we have. And therefore, there are very strict measures that have been put in place to keep the editorial side of the business uh, separated from the investment side of the business. In our documents, it's very clearly stated that there'll be absolutely nothing that we can do to control what the editorial arm of our business writes about these companies. The coverage of these companies, its founders or its associated business would be absolutely independent. And it is something that both us as well as the companies that we work with sign off on. At some point, we even made a point to the regulators to prove to them how we have been actually more critical of the company that we have invested in in India between 2003 and 2015 than our competitors have been. And we carried out research on almost 20,000 articles that came out between the time period on our companies that were, you know, the companies that were part of our portfolio. And uh, we categorized those articles as neutral, positive or negative. And it turned out that we had more negative coverage on our on our companies uh, than our competitors did. So this is something we take very, very seriously. Again, something that's extremely important to really instill that confidence in the larger venture capital ecosystem, that yes, you can trust this as being just an investment arm uh, where the, the form of investment is different from venture capital, but the intent is no different. It's to make financial gains without having any impact on, on the other arm. My understanding is that there's very broadly speaking kind of I'm going to use the term media capital because I like it, right? There's broadly speaking two types, right? There's media group owned media capital funds and then independent or non-media group owned uh, media capital funds. I think asking pros and cons is a bit of a childish and lazy <laughs> question. So the way I would think about it is more, okay, what are the differences in those strategies and what is best suited for what, right? In terms of... Mm -hmm both the startups, but also, you know, the organizations behind it and how the whole operation works. And so as usual, I'm going to mix two questions into one and mix that question with, there's also players that do that mixed up with capital. There's players that don't have the capital in that equation. There's others that only do capital, but are owned by a media group, actually. They also have that in the value add. So there's a whole different range of approaches. I'd love to hear both of you, like your reflections on that to help also us kind of understand okay, the different players and how they stack up within the ecosystem. I'm happy to start and Piyush, you can, can jump in. Um, and I, will, I, I promise I will pair this answer to the original question from Andreas of how this started and where we are, et cetera. But I, I can't promise I'm going to do it in a chronological order. So just bear with me. But let's go back to the media fund types. Again, just because it makes it easier probably to explain and refer to something that already exists in the market. In my opinion, these two models are not very different from what you see in the venture capital right now. So you've got VCs, which are independent. You also have corporate venture capital funds. And then if you really want to zoom in, those corporate venture capital funds establish for various reasons. You have these media companies as well that might do investments that look at it from a very synergetic angle. So the companies they invest in could be potential ad technologies or media, more media entertainment related technologies that eventually would end up as part of the portfolio. From what I've seen, a lot of the media funds that um, we have in our network are more treating this as a, a venture capital fund. So they actually invest in companies, you know, as a risk investment, looking at their opportunity to grow, looking at the opportunities of potential returns and obviously making money in the end, not necessarily with the idea of acquiring them. So there are two types, as you said, David. I think the most prevalent fund model uh, still remains is the one that it's owned by the media groups. 
it's actually interesting because Brain Capital International was the first media company to start a media for equity fund. However, the first fund to ever start in this space was an aggregated or independent fund, as you call it. So this industry goes back to the late 90s, early 2000s. And sorry, I sound probably like an academic right now, but the reason I'm going back and I'm mentioning this is because it's very interesting to what is happening right now in the market. Um, and I think Piyush probably also has a very strong opinion on where we see this media capital industry going. And if we remember what happened in the 90s or the early 2000s, that was when the dot-com bubble happened, right? That's when it burst. So media for equity essentially almost started as a necessity. Uh, it started in Europe. And I think it's important, again, because venture capital originated in the US. A lot of you know, the capital is in the US and we actually haven't seen media capital gaining a lot of prominence in the US yet. But it started in Europe. If you think of it as a marketplace, you have the startups, which are running out of cash and they needed capital to grow or at least to have a life vest till the next round. But then also the media companies needed a new way to diversify revenue, which is not very much different from what is happening today, because a lot of traditional companies, media companies are struggling and facing a lot of threat from the likes of Apple and Alphabet and Meta and most recently Amazon, which is... Their ad business is growing insanely fast, more than the Prime and the AWS services combined, right? So it started almost as a necessity. And the first few deals were, in fact, in the late 90s, were not even as part of a fund. They were just, I call them opportunistic deals, right? So media companies exploring this option. And then in 2002, Aggregate Media, which is based out of Sweden, was the first fund to aggregate media inventory from different funds, right? From different medias, media companies, sorry. The team had a strong venture capital background, which is usually the case with these independent media funds. They come from venture capital industry and they aggregate the media inventory to invest in startups and strike those media deals. So the reason I, I went on this tangent and I explained is because if we see what's happening, if we look at what's happening right now in the market, perhaps it would be too much to try to compare what is happening now with what happened in 2000. But there's a lot of correction. There's a lot of conversations happening around valuations and startups. You know, there's a slowdown in capital deployment. Uh, companies, founders are becoming a bit more anxious, uh, looking at extending their runway. I think what is going to happen in the next few months and years is going to be a very interesting space to watch, especially for media, for media for equity. Now, in terms of the distinction between the two, I think this probably deserves a separate conversation altogether because there's a lot that could go in there. What I can say is that the independent media funds are just naturally a bit more challenging to construct because you are dealing with several media partners. Every deal almost becomes as a, as a, you know, a special vehicle, if you like, in of itself. The way you structure the deal itself, but also thinking back of your exit returns and having those media partners involved, if not in every deal, but across a number of deals across years, it is challenging. And I'm oversimplifying it, but it's a bit more challenging doing as an independent fund. But the options for startups, I think, are essentially far greater to go with an independent fund when it comes to flexibility and options in terms of accessing media. If Piyush maybe would like to add to that as well, I could go on probably forever, but I just <laughs> want to make it, keep it short and relevant. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I think you make some excellent points there, Diana. I think the only perspective I'd like to add to this is why do publishers choose to do this? Like, why is it that publishers like the Times Group decided at some point to start a fund 
like brand capital? And then why is it that more and more publishers today are considering an arm or at least a contribution to a fund to invest uh, using their media assets? And, and so that I'd like to take an example again from within the Times Group and when we started brand capital in 2003. In 2003, 2004, in the print you know, sector, we didn't have any real estate spending. There were very few to no players really who were actually spending in real estate. And Lyft Not Player at that time called Lodha Group started working with us and started working under this brand capital deal, wherein it would take small quarter page advertisements in the Times of India to announce the new projects that it was coming out with in Bombay. It started doing that, you know, kept doing it for six months. Other players saw what's happening. Lodha was already getting some interest. And other players started following suit as well. And they started taking quarter page ads in the Times of India. Soon those quarter page ads became half page ads, half page ads became full page ads, and then full page advertisements became jacket. Today in India, if a real estate project is being launched, it is rarely the case that you would not have a full page advertisement announcing the release of that project coming out on Times of India, if it is happening in a major city like Mumbai or Delhi or, or Bangalore. The point I'm trying to make is that, yes, brand capital in this process was able to have some ownership in the wealth that was created by Lodha. But what was even more important is it was able to create real estate as a new spender, as a new category of spender in its advertisers on print. And that has brought in cash to the publisher alongside the equity that it brings in by making these investments. So we call this stirring the pot, the idea that once you bring in a couple of advertisers into the pool, into the mix, you would have a number of other advertisers also come in and start spending with you, whether through equity or through cash. And in this process, we do something called category creation, creation of a new kind of advertiser that previously never spent with you. Now, to, to Diana's point, I think she, she covered it very well. And she said that you have players like Amazon and Google really taking over the market. Today, if you look at the US market, there's sort of a tripoli that exists between Amazon, Google, Facebook, and now TikTok's emerging as one of the other players. Between them, they're like 70% of the whole market. What's happening increasingly, and this was 65% three years ago. So what's happening increasingly is the smaller players are getting edged out. Startups do not spend on these companies. You know, they don't spend in cash. They don't spend through media for equity. And therefore, these smaller players are becoming irrelevant. What a media for equity or a media capital transaction allows these publishers to do is to become relevant again to an ecosystem that's otherwise forgetting about them. And I think that's why it's very important to consider uh, for these publishers to consider either starting something on their own or participating by being a part of a larger fund through which they can deploy that capital for these companies to realize how useful these publishers can be for their growth. And it, just, it doesn't just stop at Google, Facebook, and, and Amazon. I guess the, the, the major difference, though, even with a media-owned fund, so I, I kept saying that I would promise to answer Andrea's question, I, and I didn't, but there's a lot of a lot of media for equity funds owned by media companies, primarily in the UK. It's actually mainly the Western countries. So it, it starts with Germany, the Nordics, the UK, and France. And in the UK, majority are owned by media groups. But it's important that if you actually look at the team and how it's structured, it's a special and a very different vehicle, similar to as well to uh, Brain Capital, that it sits outside of the media business. So Channel 4 Ventures, although it's not a separate legal entity, it's called a growth vehicle. They have an investment team, you know, Vinay who runs it, 
comes from a venture capital background. ITV Adventures is in fact a separate legal entity sitting outside of ITV. DMG Ventures, it's another example. So it's a Daily Mail and the General Trust as LPs. And it's an interesting fund, actually, that one, because it's one of the very few, or if not the only one, that actually mixes cash and media at the same time, uh, which is quite interesting because I think it's quite hard to actually make the case for media when immediately also offer cash to a founder. It makes it a bit more challenging, I think, to negotiate. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because if anyone that listens today and works for a media company or essentially comes from an emerging, from a venture capital world and thinking of establishing such fund, I would say, and I will always make the case for collaboration and working, if you have media inventory, putting that into an independent fund that has the expertise and the time and the resources, and most likely they already have the network and the startups to invest in, as opposed to trying to do it yourself inside the lar- in a large company. Because as we've seen in many examples, the core business will always take precedent, right? And it requires a lot of time and resources to create a fund. Uh, interesting. I'm happy to hear you uh, throwing a bone to our good friend Manuel from DMG, because <laughs> they yeah. are doing some interesting work. Cool. If I may, I'll take us to the quick fire. The quick fire round is our little special round where we end off with quick answer questions. Are you up for it? And feel free to take whichever question you feel like when I ask. Sure. <laughs> First question of the quick fire is, what areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I mean, I think the creator economy and the D2C space, I won't see other people don't feel as excited about, but I feel there's still more to be explored. In, in those categories than has been, yeah. I agree with Piyush and um, I would say, you know, direct to consumer brands, I would probably zoom in on femtech. It's an interesting market that sector actually or focus area that has been growing a lot, but also more like sustainable beauty brands. I think we've seen some interesting companies that are using CBD-based products. And the reason I think it's interesting and we don't talk enough about it is because it's a highly regulated industry. However, we've seen a lot of progress lately in the space. For example, I think it was Google just a few months ago that um, it actually started allowing CBD products um, to be advertised on, on Google. And mental health as well. And I think particularly the use of like non-conventional treatments like psychedelics, for example, which again, we don't talk enough, not because it's not interesting. I think it's highly regulated and a lot of investors are trying to stay away until uh, there's there's more progress happening in the space. Second question, and usually we ask for tips for emerging managers, but instead, today we will ask you, what are your top tips for VCs who are looking to work with media for growth partners? Trust us as a, as a financial investor, what we have at heart is the company's best interest together both venture capital and media capital put together would probably do a partnership that would generate something more than just venture capital, which is then deployed towards marketing. Because in this case, you're getting on board a partner, a publisher as a partner would allow a more efficient use of that media that the company would otherwise spend on its own. So there's every reason to consider this partnership. And uh, we've had many successes in the past and, and uh, alternative Forms of investment, alternative forms of capital raise are becoming more mainstream. And we see media capital as something that will certainly only go up in, in terms of total assets deployed every every year. I would say that media capital would just make the cash essentially work harder, not just because it allows you access to that 
you know, TV or it's in fact, not only the inventory it's the skill set as well. And a lot of the late stage companies, when they make that leap forward to such channels, they sometimes at the start, they don't have that capability in house. And I think it's important to work with a media partner, but also if you fund a company that ultimately would spend on digital, uh, when they do go ahead with a media capital deal and they invest, for example, in TV, TV has an amazing multiplier effect, which would actually optimize your cost essentially on digital as well. So that's why I meant by making the capital work harder, because I think everyone, you know, just succeeds the startup, obviously your investment in the company, they might be able to raise even more funding and accelerate that growth and that brand that otherwise might take even more years and time, right? And I think time actually is probably the most precious thing here because we're all looking at, you know, shortening that path to liquidity after all. And final question of the quick fire route. What's the most counterintuitive thing you have learned since you started in the VC slash media capital industry? <laughs> I feel like the whole space is counterintuitive. I feel like, like before we start, just before COVID, right? You know, nobody really could care about discounted cash flows and profitability and, um, you know, just a lot of money were being deployed. And then COVID came and everyone was just trying to, you know, investors were telling founders, you just have to be extremely frugal and cut cost, cut cost. And then in 2021, these things picked up again. And now we're back again to like, okay, we're, we're, not, we're not relying on revenue multiples anymore. We want to see actual cash. So uh, can I just say that the whole space is continuing to... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, no, I, no, no, I actually re really like that answer. I think that's a good, that's a good one. And it goes to like the, how sentiment-driven the freaking industry is, right? Because it's all, it's all about sentiment. Yeah. It's not necessarily about hard data. Uh, so it is a very interesting reflection i'd say i just add a point to what anna said what also counterintuitive one of the things that happens during the times of recession is the first thing that gets knocked off from pnls is marketing and advertising and uh, it's uh, it's obviously media companies that struggle uh during this time what i'd say however is it's also an opportunity for many startups to really and, and companies to really find their way to the consumer when there isn't as much noise in the market if everybody is advertising in 2021 when you know everything's at an all-time high, it's very difficult to get that consumer's attention. But if you're doing it at a time when almost everybody's cut down, slashed their marketing budget, it's a good opportunity for you to reach out to your consumer. So if you do have the wherewithal to spend that capital, if you have a good media capital investor around, around the corner, then reach out. And there's a reason to spend at a time when there isn't as much noise in the market. So it doesn't happen in the industry, but it's something to consider. Yeah. And also, if any of your portfolio companies were actually investing perhaps last year in, in advertising and now because of what is happening, they probably had to cut costs or they're thinking of cutting costs. It's just a lost opportunity because you spend all that money and time to build your brand. And now cutting that cost would just be at the detriment of your brand and you work so hard to build it. So there is a possibility, yeah. essentially, exactly what you said, to continue that whilst saving cash and essentially extending that runway and maybe raising the next round on more favorable terms. Yeah. And on that note, I would thank you both for participating. I kind of feel like making a joke saying that we will announce our fund of funds media for equity activity, but that is just a joke to our listeners. But it's very insightful. You know, after all, EUVC is a media and an investment house. So it, we're obviously super interested in these topics. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. And I think our uh, listeners will enjoy it thoroughly as well. Thanks for having us, David. Thank you, David. Thanks, Andrew. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.